Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you all to turn over to Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bible this morning. And I want to offer you a copy of the Bible. If you don't own one, it would make us really happy to be able to give you your first copy today. We've provided Bibles at the center of each aisle uh, just for you, hoping we get a chance to put it in your hands and to encourage you to, to read it starting this morning. I mean, it's going to be a lot easier for you to track with the next little bit of our time together if you've got it open in front of you. Uh, but, but also to take it with you and to read further and to give us a chance, if you will, to talk to you about what you read there. We are gathered here today because we believe that, that a man who was just as real, just as human, had a body just like ours, really did die, really did rise again from the dead, really is still alive right now, and really does have the authority and the power to offer that same kind of resurrection to you. I know that might sound crazy, but there's good reasons to believe it's all true. And it's our only hope in life and in death. And it's the promise, it's the message that we believe has set us free from what we would describe as a slavery we had known before. I would would love the chance to talk to you more about what that message is. And then then what we're going to do here in the next few minutes is talk about the freedom that we believe can be found in that message. One of the things that we've been tracking together in this ancient letter, the letter that the Apostle Paul, the founder of Christianity, wrote to friends of his living in a region called Galatia, one of the, one of the main themes of this letter we've been trying to track with together, is, is a before and after. He's trying to remind these friends of who they were before the gospel got to them, the message of Jesus Christ, who lived and who died and who rose again, before they found that message, before it came to them and changed their lives. What were they? And then he's been trying to tell them and remind them that who you are now on the backside of that message is not who you were. And the reason he's been trying to remind them of these things, what they were, what they are now, is that they were tempted by some other teachers to slip back into patterns that they had known before they heard this message. For whatever reason, those old ways were starting to seem more and more attractive to them. And Paul is writing this letter to try to call them back The best way to do that is not to slap somebody around. It's not to guilt them into coming back. It's to remind them of the goodness of what they had found. To remind them of the severe downsides to what they had before. To actually re-communicate the power, the freedom that comes through this gospel. And that's what Paul's going to be doing in the next couple of chapters of this letter. He's going to talk a lot about freedom. The last time we were in Galatians, a couple weeks back... We were looking at another one of these before and after images that Paul used. There, it was slavery versus sonship, or to to be adopted into God's family. And that's still going to be important for Paul going forward, but he's going to shift his language a little bit, starting starting with what we look at today, but then especially in the couple of weeks after today. Now the contrast is going to be slavery. That's who you were before. And freedom, that's what you have now. So what our job will be is to try to understand what was that slavery like? How might we see ourselves slipping back into it? And then what is this freedom that the gospel has brought to the, to the Galatian Christians? What is the freedom the gospel offers to us? It's only when we are really clearly aware of, plugged into, embracing and enjoying this freedom that we'll be able to resist the temptation to slip back into what we had before. So, that's going to be our task this morning and in the next few weeks. Now, I want to tell you something about this passage we're going to look at together for this morning uh, before I actually read it. I'll offer a little bit of full disclosure. I've just set up for you what I think the main themes are, but I'm going to be honest that when we read the text, you might not be able to see them right away because it's, it's an unusual passage in Paul's letter. 
A lot of times what Paul is known for is logic, is a kind of relentless and uh, clarity and progression of thought from one point to another point to another point and then checkmate, he's got you at the end. And, and we've been seeing that kind of writing earlier in Galatians. Uh, he changes his tone dramatically in the passage we're going to look at this morning. One person said it's like he's been working their heads in the last two chapters of this letter and he switches over to their hearts in this passage. He's pulling heartstrings. He's making a personal appeal directly to them based on their personal connection to one another, their friendship the shared history they have. So Paul's language changes a lot, and so too does the way we understand his meaning. We've got to look into this very deeply personal appeal, which doesn't have a clear logical flow, which kind of just moves in and out, to try to look at what what is he doing here? What, What is he trying to get across? What's the impact he hopes this language will have on them? And that's what I'm going to try to do for us together this morning, but I'm going to ask you to hang with me as we work through the details. What I want to do is try to introduce you to three themes, three aspects of the freedom that's found in the gospel. These are things that are going to be talked about later in the letter. We don't have to cover all this ground today. But I want to introduce you to them because they're so important for seeing what Paul wants us to see going forward. Three things about the freedom that the gospel brings that come out in this passage, in this this direct and personal appeal. I want to begin by reading verses 8 to 20. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul to every one of us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. See the slavery image? It's going to carry on. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now... Now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And and though my condition was a trial to you, you didn't scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. There are three things from this twisting and turning and deeply personal passage that I want us to notice. Three things about the freedom of the gospel. That is one of Paul's favorite themes and one of the main reasons he wrote this letter. Here's the first. The gospel offers us freedom from fear. 
the gospel offers us freedom from fear. Why would you go back to slavery when you could be free from fear? I think that's the main thing Paul wants them to wrestle with based on verses 8 to 10, or verses 8 to 11, rather, of, of the passage I just read. We actually touched on these verses in our last sermon from Galatians. We were looking at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4. There, uh, Paul said that, that his friends were enslaved, had been enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here that same language comes up. Slavery and elementary principles of the world. Only, only in verse 8 he adds that you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. So how to sort all this out? What is this elementary principles of the world language? What is it to be enslaved to those that are not gods? What does he have in mind when he stitches together these terms? I want to just want to repeat some of what I said a couple weeks ago about the meaning of these words and, and the bigger impact of them. I won't spend much time here because we've done that already, but I do want to go back because it's, it's crucial for knowing why Paul is saying what he's saying. When you hear the, the phrase in verse 8 and verse 9 about elementary principles of the world, or rather verse, verse 9 and then back up in verse 3. Don't think about elementary school, the basics, you know, the ABCs of how the world works. There's a, the, the word could be used for that, but that's not what Paul has in mind. It's not about basic, uh, basic teaching. It's about, more likely, about the basic elements of the world in the way that an ancient Greek thought about the world. To, to them, the world was made up of, of, of basic elements that were enlivened, that had divinity behind them. Things like water, fire, things like the, 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 the heavenly bodies, the stars and the moon and the planets. They, they saw these as the elemental spirits or elemental principles of the world and, and saw all of them as inhabited by divine power. Now, they knew enough to know that, they, that somehow things like the seasons were affected by those elemental heavenly bodies. So if you want a good harvest, and you know that's going to depend on the seasons working in your favor, then what you have to do is pay off the elemental spirits that are attached to those heavenly bodies that determine the seasons and how all of that shakes out. That's how they would have thought about the world. That's what their religion would have been for, getting these elemental principles on your side, or at the very least, staying off their radar. You know, kind of at, at best, getting them to work for you. At worst, getting them to ignore you so that they don't pick on you. They don't make you their special project. Now, for Paul, whether these, whether these elemental principles, whether these things that are by nature not gods exist or not is beside the point. In the life of his friends, they had a real powerful existence. Even if there was no other god attached to the moon, for example... His friends lived like there was. And that's his main concern. He doesn't want them back in that kind of slavery. When you experience life on those terms, as if the world is full of powers that you need to keep on your side, what you live with is a kind of bondage, Paul's, I think, getting at. You can never rest. You've always got to earn. You've always got to, to pay. You always need to know what you need so you can ask for it and figure out what the appropriate price is. This, this reminds me of, of something uh, Janine said last week. Many of you were in here for a, a, an interview with one of our members who works as an international uh, uh, ministry partner um, in another part of the world. And she was talking to us about her life and about the setting where she lives and the, some of the basic beliefs and practices of the people she lives around, her neighbors. 
And she was saying that in her city there is a powerful and ancient kind of animism uh, that, that, that holds most of the people in its grip where they see everything around them is inhabited by spirits, even uh, plants and trees and houses that they live in, much less the, you know, the big things like the, the, the sun and the stars and the, the moon and the, the sea. And that much of their life is given to making sure they pay the appropriate taxes, if you will. So there are, there are shrines everywhere. There are morning, daily sacrifices being made. She even talked about a, an annual festival where the whole island where she lives goes quiet. Cut off all communication, cut off the internet, cut off TV, cut off all of it in the hopes that the spirits that inhabit the island will think that the island is now not inhabited and will leave. These were things she uh, new to me. I had never heard the, the, her describe the main religious practices where she lives. And I'm thinking the whole time about Galatians 4. I mean, this is what, that's exactly what Paul has in mind. The kind of slavery where your whole life is about keeping these gods appeased. Paul doesn't want that for them. Because Paul knows, besides the fear that they're living with, what they've got here is basically a transactional relationship with these gods that aren't gods. It's not personal. They don't have someone watching out for them. They don't have someone paying attention to their lives and what they need. They don't have someone they can depend on. At best, they have a tool they can use if they can figure out how to use it right. There's no intimacy, there's no love. And in this way of life, where you stand always depends on you. Now, with that slavery as his backdrop, with the fear that that stirs up as a kind of constant presence, I want you to think for just a minute about the freedom of the gospel for those who are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Remember, that's his bigger context. In these verses, he's not using that language, but that's only because he just did, like two verses earlier. His context is here, what you have now compared to what you knew then. Then, at best, you had gods you could turn to your favor with the right price. At worst, you had gods who could ruin you. And whichever way it worked out, what you had were gods who were waiting, who were watching, who were evaluating what you offer. Gods who don't take initiative in your life. The first move in this way of relating to the gods is always going to be on you. Paul is, is, is tying now the teaching of these, of these folks who were trying to get the Galatians to obey the law to the paganism these Galatians came out of because it's basically the same system. These new teachers are saying, you know, the first move is on you. You got to obey. Now, if you can keep all these days and months and seasons and years straight, if you can observe all the holy days and the proper festivals and sacrifices that go with each one, if you can make sure that you keep the law in total, then God will be for you. Then you'll have the blessing that you want from Him. It's really using the law for a basically pagan approach to God. Paul's not going to see his friends go back into that slavery, not again. And that's why he's reminded them in the gospel, if in paganism, if in this abuse of the law, the initiative is always on you, and you've got to convince the gods to be for you, in the gospel, the initiative is with God. That's why he says to them in verse 9, now, now 
that you've come to know God. And then he corrects himself, rather to be known by God. The key is not who you know and how you relate to them. The key is who knows you. And for, in Paul's gospel, it starts with the God who knows. Who knows everything about you. Who knows all your needs, even deeper than you do. Who knows how little you have to offer and who loves you anyway. In this gospel, what's offered is not transactional, it's personal. It's relational. He's using the word know here, evoking a whole context from the Old Testament about intimate relational knowledge between God and his people. It's, it's a knowledge that's, that's best pictured in the love between a husband and a wife. He knows what he's doing here. He's saying, you once were enslaved to those who aren't gods, but now you know God. Now you're known by God. Why would you go back? Do you really want to live that way? Of course you don't. It reminds me of things Paul said in others of his letters. This initiative taking, this God who knows, who pursues, who takes the initiative himself. It reminds me of what he says in Romans chapter 5, for example. While we were still weak, he says, with nothing to offer, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, Paul wrote there, in that while we were still sinners, before we changed our act, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God takes the initiative in this relationship. While we were still enemies, he says, as if you hadn't gotten the point yet, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Do you see the thing? You see how much he's packing into this little phrase, even his, his correction of himself? Now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, now that you have come into a relationship with a God who comes for you, why in the world would you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You've been set free from that fear, as Paul says in Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear about where you stand, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Friends, I hope by now that sounds familiar. This is, this is ground we've been over before, and it's at the heart of what Paul's trying to do here. This is a gospel that can set you free from the fear that only ever makes sense when you're on your own in the world. And this is the freedom that only comes from relating to a God who knows you as his sons and his daughters by grace. There's another aspect of freedom that comes from the gospel and only from the gospel that comes out in, in the next few verses. This one's harder to find. I'm just going to be honest. I mean, I, I think what I'm about to tell you here is true to the text. It is, it is exactly what Paul wants us to get. But I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to walk with me through some details to show you where I'm getting it because it won't be obvious at first. In verse 12, Paul takes this sharp turn I talked about earlier from a kind of logical uh, uh, progression of his thought into a just direct and personal appeal of a friend to friends of someone who loves the people he's writing to and is fearful about what might happen to them if they keep going down this road they're going down. In verse 12 is where this, this personal appeal takes off. You, you've seen it. We've read it already. He, he gives them a command. Become as I am, for I have become as you are. He's talking about the freedom that he has. Become like me. I don't live in fear. 
I no longer live as if I have to keep God happy by these laws. I want you to become like me because I I became like you. When I came to you, I gave up living according to the law of Moses. I lived like you did. You become like I am. Don't go back. That's That's the appeal. But look at how he makes it. He talks back about, he talks to them about their history. He tells what, what, if you really think about it, it's a sad story between a time when they were deeply connected to one another. Love between them, obvious, even so much so that they were willing to sacrifice themselves for him to a time when they treat him like an enemy. He's, he's, he's basically asking, how in the world did we get here? It's, it's almost like he's venting, not so much frustration as bewilderment and anguish over them. He recalls their history together, starting in verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment, he said, that I preached the gospel to you at first. Whatever it was, we don't know what he was sick with. It was a problem. It, it imposed on them. They had to take care of him, but they didn't, they didn't mind. Though their condition, his condition was a trial to them, though it cost them to take care of him, they didn't scorn or despise him. In fact, they received him just as if he was the mouthpiece of Jesus himself. They received his words as, as gifts from God to them. In fact, he says later, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if I had asked you for them, if that would have helped me. That's how much you would have done for me. So then verse 16, how have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? You can see the contrast here between what they were to each other and where they are now. And it raises a question. This is where I think we can get the main point that we're supposed to get out of this. How did they get here? How did they get here? What was it that pushed them away from Paul and towards these other teachers? That's that's what comes out in verses 17 and 18. And I think this is the main thing we should take from this paragraph. It it wasn't that, that, that Paul moved on to other cities, other places, other people who needed the gospel and they felt neglected and over time they just drifted apart. That wasn't it. It wasn't from anything different from Paul at all. The reason they were turning against him is that they've been turned against him. Paul isn't changing the subject when in verse 17 he moves from how these Galatians are relating to him to the motives that drove these other teachers who moved in after he had gone. In verse 17 he talks talks about a they. He doesn't name who they are. It's the they who's been behind this whole letter. They make much of you, he says. And now we get to the core of it. Now we get to why they had been so persuasive in Galatia. And behind it all, we get a second thing from which the gospel frees us. And I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. The gospel gives us freedom from pride. We've talked about the freedom from fear. That, that came through in verses 8 to 11. I think the main takeaway here, and and it's going to get clear as the letter moves on, is that the gospel sets us free from a slavery to pride where everything that drives us is is somehow intertwined with the image we want to, to present to others or the mark that we want to make on the world or the version of ourselves that we hope to make real one day. The gospel sets us free from the pride that otherwise makes us its slave. Let me show you where this is coming from. I mentioned already in verse 17, Paul says that these teachers make much of you. That translates a word that has a pretty wide range. Um, 
It, it isn't always a bad thing. You know, Paul's going to use it in verse 18 in a good way. But in this context, used as it is here, clearly a bad thing, I think the best option for translating it is something like flattery. So they make much of you or think they, they flatter you. It's to try to court someone's favor, to try to win them over by puffing them up. In other words, this making much of you is an appeal to someone's pride so that they'll attach themselves to you. I think that fits really well with what's going on and with why Paul's bringing it up in this spot. I mean, think about the contrast of verse 16. Paul says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Basically, I held the line. I kept telling you what's real, what's true. I didn't just tell you what you wanted to hear, and now I've become your enemy. These other teachers, by contrast, they come in making much of you. They puff you up. They tickle your ears. They tell you exactly what you want to hear, but not because they care for you. Look at verse 16. They actually want to shut you out from the good things of the gospel. They want to shut you out so that you'll make much of them. <laughs> it's their pride that appeals to your pride. And behind all of it is not love. That's how flattery always works. You make someone else feel good, but not for yours, their sake, but for yours. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. These teachers were trying to draw the Galatians into the web of law. On the surface, that can be a very flattering thing. You tell somebody, here's what you've got to do if you want God to be happy with you. If you want his blessing, follow these laws. And baked into that is, you got this. You got this. You have everything you need to get this blessing on your side. You're strong. You're enlightened. You get it. You're not like those weak ones who tried and failed. You have the power to change. At one level, that's a message all of us would like to hear about ourselves. There is some self-esteem, at least for a little while, that can be had in a life of law-keeping. And to be honest, there is no self-esteem in the gospel Paul has taught them. Not in the way we typically think about it. There is absolutely nothing flattering about the truth that Paul came telling them. And it isn't always what we want to hear. I mean, maybe we're okay for a while hearing about our limitations. We get to the point where we realize we can't do everything. But we will always prefer to hear about our brokenness than hear about our sin. To hear about our weakness than to hear about our rebellion. But the gospel gives us a full package. It includes limitation. It includes brokenness and weakness. But it also includes a personal hostility to the ways of God that the Bible describes as making ourselves his enemies. And none of us want to hear that. Partly because it doesn't sound true. That's not what we feel. And partly because it sounds terrible. And it's not what we want to believe. Listen to, but listen to, we don't have these quotes in Galatians, but if you assume Paul's saying basically the same thing everywhere he goes... Here's the truth that Paul would have told the Galatians. This one comes from Ephesians chapter 2. He would have told them, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. You need a helping hand. You need a new life. You were living in the 
passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And by nature, you were children of wrath. And then, as if just to, to, to push it one step further, he says, like the rest of mankind. You're not exceptional. <laughs> I mean, even in your wrath, even in your children of wrath status, it's just like everybody else. Nobody wants to hear that. Or Titus, Titus 3. We ourselves, Paul says, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. There is no self-esteem in that message. And that's what Paul told them. And it it sat okay with them for a while. But maybe not all the way. And as soon as these teachers come in, saying, come on, children of wrath, isn't that a little bit melodramatic? (laughs) Slaves to your passions? Come on, you've got self-control. Do you really spend your days in malice and envy? Not, I mean, maybe a little envy. I mean, we're all human, but come on, your days all day? This isn't you. You've got this. We can show you how. They made much of them. Probably sounded good. Like a drink of cool water when you're really thirsty. Their heads got turned. Paul's message to them was is an alienating message when your pride is on the line. And that's a message that's turned Paul into an enemy. But friends, this true gospel, this truth that Paul preached, even at the risk of pushing his friends away, as hard as it is to hear and to accept about yourself, actually offers you a freedom that you won't find anywhere else. It offers you a freedom from the pride that will otherwise dominate your life. Friends, pride is a dangerous master to serve. It is oh so fickle. The desire to stand on your own two feet and to get praised because you've earned praise, to be made much of because you're actually a big deal and not overrated, that is, that is deep in every one of us. But the cost that it comes with is a kind of bondage that we aren't able to live with. Because if you are loved because you deserve it, you'll only be loved so long as you keep earning it. If you're praised because it's the natural response to your awesomeness, you'll only stay praised as long as you keep on being awesome. In the gospel, you gain a love you didn't earn. A love you don't deserve. And yeah, as Paul says often, that excludes boasting. That's part of the point. But a love that you can't earn and don't deserve is also a love that you can't lose once it's been set on you. Because God knew exactly who he was dealing with when he set his love on you. That picture isn't going to change tomorrow or the next day or on the day you breathe your last. You have now come to know God, or rather to be known by God, exactly as you are, and He loves you anyway. That is freedom. Let me push this a little further. I don't know where I first heard this analogy, but it's always worked for me. Somebody described the danger of of a love that you have to earn versus a love that's just given to you that you actually don't deserve, so you can't brag about, but that is therefore secure. 
describe this analogy as, uh, you, you describe that reality using an analogy of, of, of what it's like to be told that you're loved for all these very specific reasons, right? How do I love you? Let me count the ways. That sounds great for a while. You know, if a wife is saying to her husband, let me count the ways, and you, you hope as a husband that she loves you because of your robust physical appearance, you know, your chiseled jaw and your thick hair and your muscled frame, and your ability to provide for your family according to the, all their wildest dreams, the fact that you're successful but still, you know, humble and good with little kids. And I mean, add, add, I don't know what, what would go on. I don't know what, like, what women want, basically completely <laughs> mystery to me. Um, but let's just say, I, how, how I love you, let me count the ways, and then fill in the blank, add that resume, put, put on there whatever you want. What husband wouldn't want a long and specific list to be worthy of the love of their wife? Of course, as if to say, of course you love me. I mean, who wouldn't? What's not to love? I mean, that's what we want. That's what we would prefer. But that's a devil's bargain. That's a devil's bargain. Because to have someone make much of you like that, just to borrow Paul's language, I mean, to have someone make much of you because you, at least for a while, deserve it, it doesn't hold up very well over time. What happens when, say, hypothetically, your hair falls out? Just hypothetically. <laughs> what, what happens when your muscles atrophy? What happens if you lose your job and you can't actually provide anymore? What happens when your kids grow up and that thing that they drew out of you isn't being drawn out anymore? What, what happens when things change as they always do? If your wife's love for you as a husband depended on the ways that she could count in your youth, what happens when you're old? Well, at that point, what you're going to want is a love that you really don't deserve. A love that isn't tied back even to the things that she loves about you. A love that's rooted in covenant, in promise. A love that just is. And that's the kind of love that the gospel promises us. We don't deserve it. When God says he loves us, he doesn't say, let me count the ways. This is a God who knows you. He knows far better than that. But his love for you is rooted in a covenant relationship, a set of promises he established on his initiative. Remember, this is not paganism. You don't make the first move. He does. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he's love. That's just who he is. And that isn't flattering. I mean, I'll just be honest about that. That is not a flattering thing. This is not a love that makes much of you. But it's beautiful and it's freeing because a love that you can't earn is a love that you can't lose. And that's the love that your God has set on you. Now, I want to point out one more thing, one more aspect of the freedom of the gospel that comes out in these verses. Um, this one is less, uh, less a point Paul is trying to drive home than, a, than an example that Paul is giving us in the way he relates to his friends. This point that I want to make, this aspect of the freedom that the gospel gives us is, is really a set of marching orders, an opportunity, a, a battle cry for us in our friendships with one another. 
what Paul is giving us and the way he pursues the Galatians is a picture of what it looks like to use the freedom the gospel is giving you to pour yourself out for other people. Because the gospel frees you from fear over protecting or providing for yourself what would otherwise take up a huge amount of your headspace and your time. It sets you free from the fear that would drive you to think and be completely absorbed by protection and provision. The gospel also sets you free from pride, from this drive to prove yourself at every turn. Otherwise, that's going to absorb you. That you're going to be thinking about that all the time. That's going to be on your mind, and it's going to trickle down into your days, into what you spend your time doing. And if you're in bondage to fear and to pride, if you're absorbed by the, des- the drive to protect and to provide and to prove yourself always you're not going to have any time left over for others. When you're on your own, when you're your own best hope for a life of flourishing and blessing, then you are your main project. But when the gospel sets you free from fear and free from pride, it doesn't set you free into a life of just que sera sera, floating about, doing whatever seems good in the moment. It sets you free, gives you the, the, the possibility, the permission, the freedom to spend your time pouring yourself out for other people. And that's a major theme in this letter. He's going to go there in a couple of weeks, and in chapter 5 especially. One of my favorite parts of this letter is in chapter 5 where he says, use your freedom to work out faith in love for other people. Through freedom, serve one another in love, he says. We're going to be talking a lot about that. But I want to give you a little taste just by by thinking together about what Paul is modeling here. Paul is a free man. He is fully enjoying the freedom that the gospel has given to him. He knows he's a son of God who doesn't have anything to protect or provide for himself. He's crying out, Abba, Father, with the confidence of Romans 8. He knows he doesn't have anything to prove because he knows that there's now no condemnation in Christ But the law of the spirit of life has set him free from the law of sin and death. There is no room for pride in that. And yet, look at his posture towards his friends. Look what he's doing with this freedom. Look at verse 19, just for example. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Verse 11, same point there. I'm, I, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I mean, just take the, the very fact of this letter, the fact that he spent the time to write something that would have taken this much effort to think it all through, to pay close attention to what they're dealing with so that he can respond to it in kind, to, to actually go to the trouble of getting an, a letter to them. I mean, the ancient world, that was hard to do. And Paul's giving a huge portion of his life to this kind of work for friends that he's made as he's gone around preaching the gospel. This is a man who's using his freedom to bring anguish and pain into his life on purpose. He uses an analogy that I think is about as strong as you can get. This analogy of childbirth is a risky one to use. I know from experience. I mean, back in the day, uh, back when the most difficult thing I'd ever done was try to write a dissertation, I talked about that as the closest thing that I would come to childbirth. You know, there was a way to stand behind that analogy because that creative process is very difficult and it stresses you out and you're you're taking a a lot of things that you've worked on and thought through and trying to force them out into something someone else can understand and it feels like death sometimes. It's very difficult. 
But when I would use that analogy, which I thought of as a compliment, you know, because this was like the most painful thing I'd ever done, um, my friends who experienced labor would laugh at me, which was their nice way of not punching me in the face. It was probably more what I deserved. Uh, I didn't understand why my analogy got that reaction until I sat through a night of labor with my wife, which is a night I describe as among the worst of my life. I can't imagine what it was like for her. Uh, I don't use that analogy anymore. I stay away from that one uh, because I've seen the truth. Paul's using a risky analogy here. But where it was inappropriate for me to use it, as I did, if ever it was appropriate to use that analogy, it's here. Because Paul is seeing new life formed. His whole Existence is now aimed at seeing God glorified through Christ being formed in people who were once slaves. His whole life is aimed at seeing that transformation happen. And we know from his other letters, he thinks that is God's work. He can't do that. But, but he's still completely in anguish over watching it happen, over the threat that it, that it might not come the way he wants it to, over the, the, something that might intervene and stop Christ being formed in his friends. He knows God's the giver of life, but he also knows that the life that God gives is only formed in, only birthed into the world through the anguish of, in this case, a spiritual father. Just as a human life is only ever birthed into the world through the anguish of a mother. God's behind it. This is how it gets here. So what childbirth is to a human life coming into the world, this kind of anguish is to the formation of Christ in people that God is redeeming. It's that basic. I think that's what he's saying. So why would anyone who's been set free who has nothing to prove and nothing to fear, bring this kind of pain into their life by choice. Why should you? Only because of the gospel that has transformed your life. The reason you do this kind of work at this kind of cost is that you have been loved yourself at great cost. Every time Paul applies the gospel, he uses the love that, that God has shown in Jesus as the motive and the model for our love for each other now. And that's what Paul's doing implicitly here, even without saying it, even without calling it out. That's what he's doing. Paul is attaching himself to their pain. He takes on their pain as his own. He's not just empathizing with them. He's not just feeling for them on this journey towards holiness that has ups and downs, that feels like childbirth to him. He's not just empathizing. He's actually taking it on as his own. It hurts him. And there are lots of letters where we see this in Paul. I mean, I think of 2 Corinthians where he's describing his laundry list of of persecutions he's experienced, you know? The times that he was shipwrecked and snake bit and beaten to within an inch of his life and stoned. At the very end of his list, he says, and on top of all that, there is my daily anxiety for all the churches. He's brought stress into his life on purpose for precious people he wants to see made into the image of Jesus. That's every day for him. Or think of what he says in Romans 9, thinking about his fellow Jews that he loves. He wants to see them become Christians. And he says... 
He says, I, I would myself even be cut off if they could be brought in. He's, he's so invested in Christ being formed in them that he would be willing to miss out on it all if only he could see it happen for them. Where does he get this? Friends, this is just the gospel applied to his behavior. He's just given us a little taste of what Jesus did for him and for us. Think of Jesus using the last night of his life, knowing fully what he was headed for, knowing exactly what he would experience, crying out in anguish in John 17 to his father to pray for his brothers and sisters. Keep them, Father, he prays. Make them one as we are one. Hold on to them. He knew what was coming for them too, and they were on his mind in his anguish. Paul says he would be willing to be cut off if only his friends could be brought in. Jesus really was cut off so that we could be brought near. And Jesus, he experienced a pain that even labor can't compare to so that we could be born again, so that we could be renewed in the image of the one who made us. So when Paul takes up this childbirth-like anguish for his friends, he's really just applying the gospel to his relationships. And we have to do that too. Are you? If you're not, I wonder why not. I want you to think about it for, for just a minute. I want you to think about this as something you can bring to your friends in your small groups or in your conversations over lunch. Do you know something of the anguish Paul is writing about here? Are you so invested in the life of your Christian friends and of those to whom you're sharing the gospel that it, that, that it stresses you out like this? Like you long so much to see them made free that you can't even fully enjoy what you have apart from them enjoying it too? Is that anguish something that you know of? If not, I think it's, it's helpful to just to, to think about why. Not so that you'll feel ashamed. There's no power in shame. But so you can diagnose what's going on. There is power in diagnosis. And you can see what's holding you back from that depth of commitment to your friends and to their spiritual health then you can make some progress at, at following the example Jesus and then Paul have set for us. What is it, maybe, if, if you're not experiencing this kind of anguish over the spiritual health of your friends? Why not? I wonder if it's because you'd rather not bring that kind of stress into your life. I have definitely been there. Holding yourself back, or at least tempted to, protecting yourself. Friends, that's a motive of fear fear of the cost maybe for me more than fear of the cost is usually fear of making myself their enemy and I don't want that I don't like enemies so sometimes fear holds me back from the kind of depth of attachment Paul has for his friends here is that what's holding you back if so friends you need to remember you are not who you were there was a time where you had to justify your life through the way people thought about you that time is over. Now you know God. Rather, you are known by God. He sees you and loves you. That's enough. You have nothing to protect. Don't hold back. 
could it be that you'd rather make much of them so they'll make much of you that's pride I would oh I would I would always rather make much of somebody I've been fighting the drive to flatter as long as I have had self-consciousness well that's really about me though isn't it that's not driven from love your pride will keep you from this kind of depth of commitment to people is it if it is you need to remember you've been set free from that that's not who you were you've got nothing to prove you have nothing to bring to the table to begin with that's all over you've given that up if you're in Christ and Jesus is the only righteousness you'll ever need so why do you need to be declared worthy by those people who really really what they need is this kind of care Friends, again, I'm not meaning to shame you. If this is not something that's part of your normal life, it, it, it not only should be, it can be. When the gospel renovates us from the inside out, when we're renewed in the image of the one who made us, this is what it looks like. This starts to show up. This is fruit from his work. So what I'm meaning to do for you now is to encourage you to do a little diagnostic work in your own heart and to do it with your friends and to connect the message of freedom that we have in the gospel to the barriers that might keep be keeping us back from using that freedom to pour ourselves out for others. There is great power in being set free. And our only hope for being the kind of congregation that we long to be is that that power gets unleashed in our relationships with one another. So I want to pray now that God will, will do that, that he will work on us that we will taste the freedom that Jesus has made possible so that we can use that freedom for each other. Let's pray that now together before we continue to sing. Father, we pray that you would, um, that you would continue to do the good work you've begun. The promise that you always finish your work is what gives us hope when we see so little fruit often in our own lives. It's that promise that draws us back to you now in prayer, trusting that you have everything we don't that you are worthy of the confidence that we aren't worthy of. And we know that even though our heads are so quickly turned by other messages of, of hope, by false hopes that let us down over and over but keep drawing us back in, we know that, that your patience and steadfastness, your love for us that, that persists even when our love for you is cold, is still offered to us in your Son, even now this morning. We claim it again. And we pray that its power would work itself out in our lives so that our church grows stronger and healthier. We pray that we would willingly take on the anguish as of childbirth that comes from caring about other people's spiritual health and that you would give us strength and resilience in that work that comes from confidence in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.